Hey there, green future growers. Thanks for joining us today. If you're new to the show, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or your favorite Android app. And let's get growing. What's the best gardening advice you've ever received or best farming advice you've ever received? Always keep very, very meticulous records. Um, You may think you're going to remember how long it took something to germinate or (laughs) how quickly something flowered and fruited or how much you harvested. And you'll say, yeah, I remember that. This this is totally something that I'm going to remember in, you know, four to six months. Um, And that's never the case. Um, You're not going to remember what day it was. You're not going to remember how much. A lot of things you're going to fall by the way. You'll forget a thing or two. And keeping really meticulous records is a a good way um, to plan for the next season. Uh, Like I was talking about earlier, um, it all comes down to good planning. Um, it's really, really helped. It's really, really helpful to keep track of what works and what doesn't. Um, like I could not tell you, especially once it gets like super busy in the middle of the season, I couldn't tell you what I was doing on July 15th of last season if I didn't have a notebook to look back to. That's from my interview number 222 with Gabe Siciliano, another rockstar millennial who says his notes are crucial. Don't you want to get a journal? Hey, listeners. Do you have a place to keep track of everything that's going right in your garden and everything that's not quite going the way you thought it was going to and the things that you don't want to forget next February and March? Because I guarantee you, you're going to think, I am never going to forget this. I have done this 20 times this year and I'm going to make sure I do it right next year. And next March, you're going to be like, oh yeah, what was that again? By the time you're done harvesting everything and your season is over, there's nothing more important you can do than be taking notes now. Which seeds worked the best? Which areas do you want to change? Where do you want to put your irrigation? Where do you need to get row cover? Like all those little notes that are going through your mind. Like even if you just write in your journal once a week, just go sit in your garden and be like, oh yeah, this or that, or you could keep it with you. But anyway, my point is, hey, do you want to help the Green Organic Gardener podcast? Because I made a beautiful journal. It's got a butterfly on a lilac that I took a picture of so you could have a piece of your garden our garden in your garden, a place to keep your notes. It's got, uh, I think 135, um, pages that are either blank or lined. Cause those are my favorite kind of journals. Cause I like to have the lines to write and the blank pages. And so you can support the show, but most of all, you can have good records. My guests have said frequently that's their favorite tool, most valuable tool, good records. Um, so, and it would support the show. Welcome to the Green Organic Garden. It is Saturday, August 8, 2020, and I have an awesome guest on the line who has a blog called Healthy Green Savvy. She's passionate about helping people find practical shortcuts to healthier green living. So we know we're going to hear tons of golden seeds. She boils this all down from years of research on eco-friendly choices, growing food in small spaces with as little effort as possible, and easy ways to support health naturally. She even has a book, Everything Elderberry, that covers what the latest research tells us about elderberry's effect on health, Growing advice from elderberry farmers across the country, plus 62 delicious recipes for using elderberries and elder flowers. So I know we are just going to learn lots, so I'm going to be quiet. And here today is Susanna Schmumark. Oh, I totally... (laughs) You sent me the thing. How do you say that? Schmurak? Schmurak. 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 Susanna Schmurak. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Susanna Schmurak 
If you hadn't sent that, I probably would have been fine. <laughs> I probably should have practiced it out loud, though, instead of just in my head. Okay, welcome to the show, Susanna. Thank you so much for that terrific introduction. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, well, we're just tickled pink. So tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm so glad you reached out to me and are here to share this today. So go ahead and tell listeners about this. Thanks. Um, so I have a peculiar backstory. Um, I was an academic for many years. Um, I taught literature and writing um, at the college level. Um, I spent lots and lots of years um, thinking about not too much besides literature during the day and thinking about gardening and eco-conscious living all the rest of the time. Um, and my classes tended to go that way as well. And in 2015, I just decided to switch gears completely. Um, and I left academe um, and decided to start writing and researching full time. Um, and I launched a blog and started writing for a bunch of websites and magazines um, and uh, have made that kind of my um, full focus now. And it's been absolutely fantastic. Um, I volunteered locally at the um, city's Environmental Quality Commission um, and spent a lot of time researching permaculture and home-scale renewable energy um, and all sorts of topics related to health and environment. Um, so the focus of my blog, as you said, is really to try to help people make that connection between the personal and the environmental. Um, with a focus on really, really practical and doable things anyone can do so that they can shift their lives towards sustainability and better health. Um, and it's been amazing. My day job is to research things like allergy remedies and uh, how to get better sleep, to write about energy audits and experiment with non-toxic pest control and put new things in my dehydrator and write about it. Um, and it's been really, really enjoyable. Um, so I get to just be a full-time energy nerd, garden geek, um, and I just keep learning about fascinating plants that either appear in my yard or I read about online, um, that turns out we can eat them or they have medicinal value I'd never even realized. So that's kind of my backstory. Um, I have a larger backstory about where I started to garden, um, I don't know if you want me to go into that. It's kind of long and complex. <laughs> so I always start my show out asking about like your very first gardening experience. Ah, like, okay. Were you a kid or an adult? Is that where you're headed? Or I well, just have to like back up just super quickly. Where, sure. where are you located again? I am in Minnesota in Minnesota. Uh, zone, zone four. Okay, cool. So. All right. Yeah. Well, you're doing a fantastic job. And so um, just keep going. But yeah, we kind of want to hear a little bit about like, were you a kid? Were you an adult? Who were you in? What'd you Right. Learn? Okay. Well, so my first gardening experience was just helping my mother in our backyard garden. Um, and so I have memories of pulling weeds and picking things off the vine. Um, they're not too carefully formed, um, but they probably laid a groundwork um, as it were. Um, but I would say my gardening story really starts with our move to Minnesota in 2002. Um, it was the height of the housing bubble and we were graduate students and my husband had just taken his first job um, at a college in our town. And there was literally nothing we could afford to buy um, to live in in town. And there's no rental market either. Um, so 
uh, after looking at the only thing in our price range, which our real estate agent um, said should be condemned and refused to take us into, um, <laughs> uh, he just idly said, he idly said, you know, there's this old house out on the highway they're about to knock down. Maybe we should look at that. Uh, and we went out and there was this beautiful 1910 craftsman style house. Um, and it turns out uh, that if you're, if they're about to knock a house down, you can take it away for free if you're willing to pay to move it. Um, so we acquired this free house uh, and then had to find a place to move it to, um, which turned out not to be terribly easy. But we found this half lot um, just a block away from where he was going to start working a few months later. Uh, and spent the rest of the summer setting up this house move. And so we had a basement dug, the whole lot had to be cleared. Um, so all plant life got completely erased. Um, and they brought this house in, which we then started renovating. Um, and that was kind of our focus was renovating this house and making it, it was actually in great condition. It was just in the wrong place. Um, but I learned a ton about That's what I was wondering, like, how easy was it to move a house built in 1910? I mean, that's a uh, hundred years old. You'd be shocked. It's actually really, really easy for the people who do it for a living every day. Um, they just pop it off its foundation, stick it off, stick it on a truck and away they go. Um, it's kind of amazing. Uh, we had no idea you could move a house before our real estate agent just kind of said that as maybe a joke. I don't know. Um, so we just suddenly got embroiled in what was involved in bringing a house up to code. Um, and I started doing it. This is the early days of the green remodeling um, products. So trying to figure out what was safe to bring into our house became a sort of long-term project. Um, and uh, the yard then was this bare dirt. So we got permission to move in um, as fall set in. Uh, you have to have a kitchen sink and a functioning toilet. <laughs> so we had we had a reused sink on uh, two by fours and got permission to move into this house that had been um, to some degree completely gutted uh, and started remodeling it. And then there was just dirt outside uh, and nothing else. So we threw down some grass seed to just kind of try to stabilize everything. And then winter here, I don't know what it's like out in Montana, but it's about six months long um, that you can have snow on the ground. Uh, which in that particular case was something of a relief. Well, uh, I have to tell you, I had a lot of friends in college that came to Minnesota because they thought Montana was milder winters. Uh -huh. um, but yeah, I don't know. We, we have a good amount of snow. I didn't drive here from November to May my first like 10 years. But, uh -huh, right, right. It's, um, it's, probably very similar. Yeah, it's intense living in a climate like that. Um, anyhow, so then, you know, I was spending all this time remodeling the house and the, the yard was just kind of sitting there and we started dealing with weeds and this grass and started rethinking how we could do things. Um, the way the house sits on the lot means my backyard is probably about 10 feet wide and totally in shade. Um, the side yard is eight feet wide and totally in shade. So I, I have this corner lot with a, a tenth of an acre garden where I can grow a limited amount in sun. Um, so uh, I, at that point, um, started reading Fritz Haig's Edible Estates um, and the Eat the Lawn movement had kind of launched. So I started trying to smother the grass with cardboard 
and uh, attempted to grow one of these beautiful front yard vegetable gardens. And it turns out Minnesota is not a great place to do that. Um, the soil doesn't warm up enough to plant a lot of things you would stick in one of these gardens until, you know, early May. So it's just a lot of bare soil and it, it wasn't working. I tried sweet potatoes, which should have made this lovely, you know, ground cover. Um, had to give that up because our, our growing season just isn't long enough. So I learned a lot just experimenting and failing over and over and over again. Um, as I read more about permaculture, I realized that fruit trees could really be an answer to this problem. Um, and I got seven fruit trees, dwarf fruit trees, uh, squeezed into that little space um, and planted as many berry bushes as I could possibly fit in. And then kind of let nature take over. So one of the, one of the biggest things that I've gotten to do um, as this yard's developed is kind of learn how changing patterns over time force you to adapt and um, how to eat the things that will grow there. So my whole front yard now is mostly violets, um, which we use quite a lot. Um, we make salads in the um, early spring with the flowers and the leaves. Um, I use the leaves in tea all season long. Um, so uh, learning how to work with what you get um, has been part of this process. I still desperately would love a big backyard garden, but that's not what I've got. Um, and uh, so the yard is this sort of edible landscape that isn't entirely um, keeping with the aesthetics of the neighborhood, um, but people kind of like it in spring when everything's in flower and they kind of think it's wild and vaguely interesting, but also pretty weird. <laughs> Um, a lot of the rest of the year because we're in a sort of traditional neighborhood with grass and foundation plantings, which is where we had started as well. And the reason you can't have a big backyard garden is because there's too much shade? Is that there's, right? There's also no backyard. It's a half lot. It's it's 10 feet wide and it's full shade. <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, there is no backyard. Have you written a book about this? I'm like, this is, <laughs> I just love this whole story. And then the other question, like, I, I kind of like lost track or maybe I like, so your grad student, this is before you got your job at the, like, how old are you when this is all, this is in 2005? Or 2002, five? we moved here. Yeah, okay. I, was, I was not quite 30. So it's been a while. <laughs> um, yeah, so I was, a, I was a graduate student who was supposed to be finishing her dissertation at that point and kept doing things like fixing plaster and refinishing floors and reading about permaculture. Um, so my dissertation eventually got done, but it took a while. <laughs> um, so I was I was teaching full time for a couple of years, uh, for a few years there. There were kids in there. There's a lot of other things I've done besides this. Um, but the the writing um, and the blog have kind of become my full focus in the last few years. Okay, and tell us more about the Healthy Green Savvy blog. Um, so it started in part because I, as long as I can remember, I've been absolutely fascinated by um, kind of nutritional hacks. I was reading health magazines when I was in my teen years. Um, just there's something about, I don't know, um, uh, kind of tricking your body into doing things that I just found utterly fascinating, um, whether it was, you know, certain kinds of nutritional deficiencies that if you fix them, you have more energy or you sleep better. Um, and uh, I talked about these things a lot to other people um, as I would read about them. 
uh, and somebody said, you should really start a blog. And I said, what's a blog? <laughs> um, kind of went from there. So Healthy Green Savvy is, um, it's a, kind of a jumping ground for all the cool stuff that I've been reading about and researching um, and the new cool stuff that I keep finding out. Uh, but it's focusing lately a lot on things like foraging. Um, I'm utterly mesmerized by all the edible weeds that people don't realize they can eat. Um, so it seems like I find a new one each season when something- oh, Tell us about some of them because yeah, Matthew sure. Zoller asked me to bring somebody on to talk about edible weeds. And I've never really found anybody besides him. Okay. <laughs> he ended up uh, knowing more than most people and just, uh, can you can you tell us a few edible weeds? Sure. Oh, of course. Um, so there are huge websites devoted to this um, and wonderful books on foraging. Um, but pretty much every yard has something you can eat. Um, so most people know about dandelions, right? That's an easy one to identify. And it's wonderfully prolific and also incredibly nutritious. Um, the, I'm a big fan of arugula. So I use the leaves of dandelions in a very similar way. But you can eat the flowers. The roots are medicinal. Um, they're just great plants. And, and since I smothered my grass, they're actually in short supply. So I'm really happy when I find some of them in my yard. Um, uh, wood sorrel grows abundantly here. Purslane is one of my absolute favorites. It's um, available pretty much everywhere. It's incredibly tough. Um, it's considered one of the best sources of omega-3s out there. Um, in the plant world anyway, and um, I use it in smoothies and salads. People around the world use it as a vegetable. It's, it's a, a standard in stir fries. Um, let's see, uh, I've already mentioned violets. We use those quite a lot. Um, I'm really, really trying to make friends with Creeping Charlie. Um, I don't know if you've ever tasted it. It really would take some getting used to. I haven't figured out something that would make it valuable, um, but it's... No, it's, I don't know what that is. You don't have Creeping Charlie out there. Oh, that's fascinating. I don't know. Um, Maybe we do, and I just don't know what it is. Um, it's also called Ground Ivy, and it goes by some other names as well. Um, anyway, it's apparently very good for you if you can, if you can stomach the flavor. It's in the, it's in the mint family. Um, and uh, people with lawns everywhere you pretty much universally despise it, but it's this fantastic ground cover. Um, and I would love, I would love to try to find a way to use it besides, you know, begrudgingly adding a little bit to my tea sometimes. Um, this year I've got uh, slammed with Virginia water leaf. Um, it just went crazy in my yard and of course I looked it up and discovered look you can eat that too and again I really tried um <laughs> it's it's edible but that's about the best you can say for it um it's not wonderfully tasty um but in small amounts it worked in things like frittatas um if it's cooked and uh, you can sort of get away with it as an early spinach it's nice because it's so early um, when everything else is frozen here it's something that's out there that you can put in a smoothie if you wanted to that sort of thing um, what other edible weeds have we? How had? about a soup? I'm not the biggest smoothie person. Like, okay, yeah, especially soup. at that time of year, like I'm so craving live, fresh, green food. Understood. I'm much more likely to put it like in a soup or a salad. Like yes. I've tried to put spinach in a blender and just practically <laughs> cry trying to do it. But I'm like part rabbit. I love vegetables. Uh -huh, uh -huh. I do too, actually. That's, that's a big reason I wanted to grow food so badly. 
Um, yeah, it could, I, I don't know if, if your listeners have this plant. It's not a well-known plant, but it is very invasive once it gets started in a yard, but it's a, it, around here it's a native, so it's invasive, but not a bad guy in some ways. Um, anyhow, yeah, it could, it could work in a soup. It has a little fuzz to it. The early leaves you could probably get away with. Um, I'm a huge fan of a Minnesota chef, uh, who has a blog called Forager Chef, and he works with Virginia Waterleaf a decent amount. Um, so that's, uh, that's awesome. Well, these are all great. Um, just tons of edible, uh, things that grow nearby that listeners are probably going to be like, what can I find? I yeah, just they- ran into my friend Theodore the other day and we were talking about, we were actually applying for this thing called, um, what was it? Plants to grants, or I don't know, but it was about like, you could get a grant for teaching people in your community about herbs and local oh, native cool. plants and things. And so we were talking about, um, taking plantain and chewing it up for a bee sting. And sure right. enough, the next day, Mike like was getting me some straw to mulch my raspberry bed and pulls yeah. apart two things and bees just come flying out this whole nest and we both got stung like four times and I was like I know what to do I know what to do so I chewed up the plantain I don't think I chewed it up enough for Theodore was like you gotta really chew it and get those juices out but that's a local thing that's all over my yard yeah well you can eat those too early ones you can go ahead with your soup and your salad and um I I tried and did not succeed there's a recipe online somewhere for plantain chips like kale chips so you can try that. I think the leaves get tough as they get older and it's later in the season, but that's another good one to try. Yarrow is another one I grow and use quite a bit of. And then there are a bunch of things that aren't weeds that turn out to be weedy in the yard that I also just kind of let go. Things like mints. Um, I'm a giant fan of lemon balm. That's everywhere. Um, so most you know, every few days I go out and brew up a big batch of tea and it usually has some of the weeds in it as well as a lot of lemon balm. So I do things like uh, violet leaves and yarrow and a little bit of catnip for a nighttime tea. Um, but it's fun to just, you know, I have this little tiny yard, but I can go out and pick things either for dinner or for brewing up some medicinal teas. Um, it's been a really amazing experiment. Okay, tell us about the fruit and the elderberries. Ah, okay. Well, the elderberries are a latecomer. The fruit, um, I've always been a fruit junkie. I've probably eaten more fruit than it's good for me. Um, But that was a huge part of um, what's worked on this property. Um, Even as the trees have grown in and we've gotten more shade, we've got raspberries, um, we've got honeyberries. um, There were some mulberry trees planted on the borders of the property, probably by birds. I have strawberries growing, apples and plums. Um, My cherry trees haven't fared very well. Um, I'm going to make a huge plug for service berries. Do those grow out where you are? Or June berries or Saskatoons? They're going to go by a lot of names. Yes, they absolutely do. Um, They're like, they're almost like blueberries or huckleberries, but a little bit sweeter, I think. Yes, they are absolutely wonderful. And And the birds love them. Yes. Um, and when they produce well enough, they're enough for the birds and for the people. They can be really prolific. Um, and it's just been a, a great source of free fruit. I've been really, really happy with that one. Um, elderberries, I'm just actually planting some of the unusual cultivars I learned about researching my book. So I don't have a lot to report about those. Um, I think I did a bad job planting uh some of them maybe 12 years ago, I don't actually remember, uh, and they didn't, they didn't survive. Um, 
so I'm curious to know if I can get a nice big elderberry shrub going. Um, elderberries are these fantastic medicinal plant that uh, we can find references to more than 2,000 years ago. Um, Hippocrates was was using elder pretty heavily in uh, in ancient Greece. Um, and what I didn't really realize till I started researching this book is how useful the flowers are as well. So you actually get two crops out of this one plant. Um, elder flowers have this gorgeous scent um, and can get turned into all kinds of medicinally useful things like tea or tincture, um, but also they are um, a tremendous ingredient for treats um, and elder flower cordial um, winds up in all of these fancy cakes um, and um, can be used for things like um, uh, popsicles. Um, they were just so much fun to play with that I decided I really needed some growing in my yard as well, um, rather than just raiding my friend's farm <laughs> when I needed some. Um, so uh, elderberries are fantastic um, garden plants. They grow on marginal lands. They don't need a lot of care in general. They're pretty pest resistant. Um, the native plants do really, really well. Um, uh, they're a good understory plant for readers who are doing some permaculture. They even get along with black walnuts. They're often used in a black walnut guild. Um, if you're looking to do gardening that offers you some medicinal ingredients, I don't think you could go wrong uh, planting elderberries. And in my book, uh, I have interviews with um, numerous growers from around the country, and I learned so much about um, the more sort of unusual varieties. Um, and uh, you can order a bunch of these online and get flowers and fruit in much greater quantities than um, you could if you're just using a, a regular native plant. So, so my question is, um, so Mike made some Oregon grape jelly a couple of years ago that was just to die for, but like, it's always been my experience that things like these service berries and stuff need a ton of sugar, but if these are used like in cordials and things like, are they sweet? Do they need less sugar than uh, okay. other you, berries? Is that your question? I, I disagree with you on the, on the June berries needing, needing sugar. Um, elderberries definitely do. They are, they are not a sweet fruit by themselves, though if you get the right plant, there are some known for um, sweeter fruit. Bob Gordon and York are often highlighted as varieties to go for. Um, if, you're after, if you're after a little more sweetness and flavor, um, but no, there is a fair amount of sweetening required. Um, I'm generally, as a, as a health conscious person, um, into avoiding sugar and other kinds of sweeteners. Um, so I tend to, um, use a lot of things like, um, combining the elderberry concentrate, um, it's called decoction. So it's like making your own elderberry syrup, but you don't add the, the honey to it. Um, it doesn't keep as well. Uh, but I will add that to smoothies or popsicles or things like that, um, to, uh, keep down the added sugar. But, um, a lot of people will throw, uh, fresh elderberries in baked goods where, um, the baked good would already have a certain amount of sweetness. So, um, if you use them that way, you know, yes, you might be, you might be choosing to, to get more sugar than perhaps is ideal. Um, I wouldn't do that in sort of immune support situations, um, unless you have to, to get them down. I actually really like things that aren't sweet. Um, so that's a little bit different. 
I have like a horrible sweet tooth. Uh, yeah, I get. I mean, I suppose Sarvis berries are kind of sweet on their own. The June berries that you were saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Well, did you want to tell us more about your book in elderberries, or do you want to tell us like about something that grew well this year, or where do you want to go? Uh, let's see. Um, well, um, what else would I tell you about? elderberries um i don't i guess i guess your audience is probably most interested in the um growing information on it and i gave that to you um if i'm going to make a plug for my book uh, i would say that it's incredibly heavily researched i put that academic background to use uh it has tons and tons of footnotes i dove into pubmed in a very big way um i got biochemists on the phone uh and asked them lots of questions about um may have heard that uh, parts of the plant can be toxic um, and really pushed some people to get some information on how that all works. Um, So I, again, boil down just tons and tons and tons of research um, to try to make this as approachable as possible. There's foraging information if if you're not growing them and you want to go forage them. Um, And then I just spent untold hours in the kitchen um, trying to figure out the best ways to use these flowers and berries. Um, I can't even tell you how many muffins I ate last summer trying to get a good (laughs) elderberry muffin recipe. Um, So it's it's an unusual book in that it's part cookbook. Uh, It does a lot of historical stuff uh, as well as science. um, And uh, I promise it contains information you're not going to find anywhere else. So that's my, that'll be my plug for my book. Um, what grew well this year? Well, rhubarb grows well every year. Um, I love rhubarb. Uh, it's been one of those plants um, since I write for gardeners who are strapped for time, um, as I often feel I am. Uh, it's one of those plants that you can really stick it in the ground just about anywhere and it's going to do brilliantly. Uh, and so I got a starter division from somebody, I don't know how many years ago, um, because I had gone to a dehydrating workshop where they passed around um, a fruit leather made with rhubarb. And I was instantly hooked. If you have a little bit of a sour tooth, um, this stuff is just utterly incredible. Um, and so now I have eight rhubarb plants growing in this tiny corner lot. So they're kind of ornamental, um, during much of the year, but I pick them tremendously in the spring and put up a ton of, um, rhubarb leather, um, that anyone who tries it is just like, wow, this is fantastic. And my kids and I devour it. Um, the Juneberry tree performed wonderfully this year. It did really, really well. I've never seen a harvest like that one. And I had to beg people to come pick some because I didn't have time to get all the berries down myself. Um, so those did really, really well. Um, perennial fruits and vegetables, I think, are just a gardener's friend, um, particularly a busy gardener's friend. So I completely forget in early spring if there isn't rain to keep all my seeds watered, but the rhubarb is there no matter what. I don't have to do anything. Um, I've got sunchokes growing on in one spot as well. Um, those are also called Jerusalem artichokes. Those are another one that just need absolutely no attention um, and produce really well. And they have um, big, beautiful, like yellow sunflower and, um, uh, flowers too, don't they? So they feed the they bees and the pollinators. Yeah, they have. 
They do. They come out really late here. They're, that, that happens in September. They're very small, beautiful sunflowers rather yeah, than large but ones. But that's good to have. Like, um, one of the big things but, I learned on my podcast when I was talking to um, uh, this professor, his thing's called Pollination Nation, I think, or he has a podcast on pollinators. And he said that one of the uh-huh. biggest keys is making sure you have something yep. blooming all from like, you know, as early as you can in the spring, all the way through the fall. Cause he said, that's what the bees and the um, butterflies and, you know, beneficial insects and everything really need is a consistent supply of different flowers. Absolutely. Um, yeah. I just taught a class on um, creating an eco-friendly yard and uh, in prepping that I came across a reminder. Um, so not only the, the, different bloom times and it's great if you can have some of the early season stuff and leave those dandelions in place um, and then all the way into the fall you know some of those late bloomers we have some goldenrod that showed up that I let go um, and then I have the sun chokes um, one of the things that people don't necessarily realize um, particularly in a landscaped area like ours where you know good citizens mow their lawns and rake their leaves is how important leaving the leaves can be for the pollinators. Um, the pollinator society called Xerxes or Xerxes, X-E-R-C-E-S, um, has a campaign in the fall called Leave the Leaves. Um, so that's another thing you can do if you're trying to uh, promote Wait, I got to hear more about that. So like when the leaves fall off the tree, it. don't rake them up and like put them in your compost, just leave them where they fell? For the poly- and what does that do? Like give them homes or someplace yes. safe to stay? Yes, it's a place for them to overwinter and you clean up in the spring when there's not that much to do in the garden, which is kind of a nice thing. I want to hear more about the, mm-hmm. um, the class that you taught about an eco-friendly yard, mm-hmm. especially like this friend of mine, Patty Armbruster, sure. who has like so- a own fan club on my show because she talks so much about soil health and drops so many golden seeds. And she actually came to our house. Uh-huh. And I can tell like sure. she's, it is keeping her up at night how much lawn my husband and I have that we look at the lawn as like fire break because we're in a very foresty area but we do have an orchard where I feel like we could do much more of this edible landscaping like you're talking about I mean I would love to have more fruit bushes I'm just struggling to put it together (laughs) yeah well if you know it takes it takes an investment up front but you know under under planting trees with something besides grass really not only um, can massively increase the production of your yard, but um, also greatly increase its sort of um, eco-friendliness. A bigger plant, particularly something with deep tap roots, is gonna be moving carbon out of the air and into the soil. Um, So you can actually think of ways to create things that are sort of carbon sinks in your yard. Um, The class I taught kind of uh, came from numerous um, articles that I'd researched that, um, first of all, looked at the massive um, footprint that lawns can have when they're fertilized um, and when they're mowed. Um, Something like 17 million gallons of gas are spilled every year, (laughs) never mind um, how many gallons are used to mow and putting all that carbon into the air from that. Um, It turns out fertilizer itself, when it breaks down on a lawn, instead of being taken up, is um, also a very potent producer of greenhouse gases. Um, So limiting the lawn 
And then finding ways to whatever long you do keep to manage it in the most eco-friendly way, then also to think about where you can lose it. And um, since I'm writing for people in sort of smaller landscapes uh, and people who don't want to take on ginormous projects, um, laying down a little bit of cardboard each year. So I didn't get rid of my whole lawn at once. I did these sort of cardboard segments to smother the grass little by little until it was all gone. I put the cardboard down and I'm trying to smother this one section of grass with uh-huh. like this cardboard. And I don't know what to do. Like I picked it up and part of the grass is dead and part of it's not, it's been a month to me. It's like this sore spot and I don't know what to like, I don't have really, or I know I'm probably supposed to put dirt or compost on top of it and then grow something. But what yeah. if I don't have yeah. dirt to put on top of it? Yeah. Okay, so um, what you could do this fall, it's called sheet mulching or lasagna gardening. Ideally, you'd have some soil or compost, but you can actually just throw your kitchen scraps and some of your leaves and other garden garden cuttings and things on top of your cardboard. So you need to leave your cardboard a lot longer than a month um, and you cover it. Ideally, so if you were in a hurry to plant, you would cover it with a good layer of soil and compost and then you could plant directly. Um, this other way is slower, but um, in some ways easier because you don't have to haul in a ton of soil if you don't have it. Um, so um, if you look up lasagna gardening or sheet mulching, you'll find kind of the steps of piling this stuff up. And what's incredible when the cardboard sits there over the winter is that somehow the worms find it. Um, so our, our soil was really badly compacted and um, I started putting down cardboard with a thin layer because I'm frugal and wasn't going to bring in a ton of stuff, a thin layer of, of compost and topsoil, and the worms just showed up in droves. Um, so you need some patience for that. You also need to make sure your cardboard is completely covering um, that know, area. See, so giving gaps between, like, between it, that like, so find I'm trying back. to extend this garden bed, and I figured it was a good place because it's someplace the hose already reaches. I'm already going to go water to, so it'd be a good place to have a new bed. But between where the cardboard ends and where the the wood of the deep bed is the grass is like 14 inches tall like it is not is like squeezing out so then I was thinking I was like maybe I need to put like black plastic over that board between there and the cardboard and then um I am thinking that I could take, like, we have a lot of grass clippings from the last time I cut the lawn, like, at the end of July that haven't really decomposed yet, but they might be ready to go on there. I've been trying, like, last night I brought a whole bucket full of coffee grounds down and just, like, maybe maybe they're ready to go on there. Because I did do the cardboard thing in this other place, and I used the compost, and I think Mike is, like, he's he's just, like, that compost was like earmarked for carrots and beets and the other things. And like, I'm looking at them now because I grew buckwheat in it with the intention that eventually I'm going to put Uh perennial flowers there because I love perennials like you do, but I just took the compost at the wrong time Uh and way too much of it. (laughs) Right. Okay, so if you have a place that is still got 14 inch grass, you can, I would advise mowing that down before you put down the cardboard, you get the cardboard wet and you layer it so that the the edges overlap. So there's nowhere for it to get through. And then, yeah, throw on those grass clippings, anything you can find. You can swipe, you know, leave the leaves you can, but swipe the leaves that you can't and put them there. Uh, If you can get somebody to deliver a truckload of manure or something, that would be fantastic. But you just layer 
as much as you can. And the, the lasagna, so I'm, I'm, a, I'm a shortcut person. Um, the lasagna gardening method, I think, involves feet of materials. And that's just not practical in a lot of situations. Um, so I've really gotten away. I, I haven't done the, um, that traditional method so much as I've thrown soil and compost on top of cardboard because I just don't have enough material otherwise. Um, but uh, I think do what you can. Um, put whatever you can on top of that. And, and I bet you'll find in the spring that you're more able to plant. And if you're not bringing enough soil to get uh to get something planted there wherever whatever you're trying to get in okay all right well i i feel a lot better about the project now see the thing is like so my husband's goal is to grow as much of our produce as we can for the year and to like supplement and so he has this thing i call the mini farm and so we do bring in as much comp um, manure and compost as we can and like we have chickens just for the manure it's just all of that is earmarked toward his little mini farm full of vegetables but you know he's not all that mad at me (laughs) and we do share and my buckwheat that's growing in the other two beds where I'm trying to build the soil up is doing good you know like I read where I started the the buckwheat thing it's supposed to be a 30-day crop or maybe on the back of the seeds it said that and I'm realizing I think I planted it July 7th or I don't know it's over it's just over a month but it's actually I, the first time I grew buckwheat, it got like three feet tall before it flowered. This buckwheat this year is only like not even a foot tall, but both beds are starting to flower. So maybe it's just going to be a smaller crop because of the weather we're having this year. We, we're having a really strange growing mm-hmm. season in Montana <laughs> this year. Like we had rained through halfway through July and then it got super hot for the last three weeks and like yesterday it feels like fall like mike wanted to build a fire this morning i kid you not it was 40 degrees <laughs> all night um yeah we've had some heat like that as well yeah this yeah. is the new this is the new world we live in right weather weirding global weirding whatever it is it's, well know, this is just um, awesome you're dropping tons of golden seeds yeah. so tell us something you're excited to do different <laughs> next year or that you're excited to try new Sure. Well, I've been experimenting with uh, different pest controls a lot. Um, uh, so, you know, you, I, I, you win some, you lose some. Um, and I, you know, some things definitely won. And man, the ground cherries, I just cannot win against whatever devours the leaves the second they go in the ground. Um, so I've tried spraying them with neem. I've tried putting orange peels all around them. I've tried crushing eggshells and coffee grounds and just I, I want my ground cherries. Do you, do you uh, know what those are? They're it so sounds <laughs> very familiar. You know I want to say I tried them at the farmer's market, but I can't be 100% positive. Yes. Do they look to like do. a little yes. tomato? I first tried them there as well. Oh, I think you have something completely wrong. Yep. Oh, sorry. No. No, they look like a little tiny tomatillo. Yeah. They come in That's that lovely little papery yeah. package, but they're small. Yeah, yeah. They themselves are not hollow, but the paper package they come in, yes. Um, they're incredibly expensive to buy because if you've ever harvest them, it's harvested them, it takes forever. 
Um, so I tend to focus my garden on the, on the things that I'm too cheap to pay someone else I to do. I love that because in my uh, book, I talk about, just there's like of- all these worksheets. <laughs> we, my husband and I wrote this book called the organic oasis guidebook. And it says, yeah. what do you find yourself staring at in the grocery yeah. store that you wish you could buy, but can't afford it? I think that's so important. Right. Exactly. Yeah, so I, I absolutely focus our garden choices on that. Um, and because our garden has to be small, we belong to a CSA as well. So I also choose things, you know, where they're growing them so beautifully and let me pick them in abundance, I don't bother. Um, so I haven't had to grow cilantro in like 12 years. Um, yeah, that's awesome. I struggle with cilantro so much. I know um, so many people are like, yeah. it's so easy to grow, but it is <laughs> a challenge for me. Right, everybody everybody has different problems. They grow fantastic zucchini and I have these uh, squash vine borers that just will not quit. So ground cherries are one where I just cannot figure out, well, I haven't tried everything yet. Um, Again, I haven't gone for some of the pricier kinds of things that you can mess with. I would like to like to preserve those better next year and see if there's a better way to do it. Um, The other thing that I keep meaning to do that I will do differently next year, I hope, because I say this every year, um, there are some edible plants that I haven't yet tried. Um, So milkweed apparently is divine. Um, And I I have so much of it growing in my yard uh, and I have yet, I have yet to try it. Um, So I would like to do that. Apparently the flowers are good, the shoots are good, you can even eat the pods in their early stage, um, and hostas are the other one. I have just a few hostas growing in the shady side yard, and I just never get around to cutting them at the right time to try to grill them and eat them. They're supposed to be fantastic. Oh That's my gosh, you are such year. a fantastic guest, because <laughs> you're answering a lot of the questions like I get all the time. What do I do about pests and bugs and things. And so um, I love that you're sharing all these challenges after you've been doing this for quite a while now. I mean, this is the same house you bought in 2002, 18 years later. Um, Yeah. So tell us about something that didn't work quite so well this season, like that didn't come out the way you thought it was gonna. Okay, so we're going to go back to pests. We are having an unbelievable year for Japanese beetles. Um, and one of the many things I did as I was rethinking how to use our yard was plant grapevines around the edge of our porch. Um, and so, uh, in order to maximize time outside, uh, we have a screened in porch. Um, I like to do a lot of my work out there, but I'm right here on a corner with sidewalks really close and I want to kind of be hidden. And so the grapevines are a big part of my strategy. Um, they also produce grapes, which is nice, but they, um, they're giving us some screening and makes the porch at least 10 degrees cooler because they're shading us and so it's also lowering our energy bill. I love these things and unfortunately so do the Japanese beetles Um, and they just showed up in droves this year. I've never seen anything like it so um, I've always done the pest control where you go out and you drown them in some soapy water and you know maybe they'll eat some leaves and it's no big deal but they just kept coming and apparently as they chew the leaves it gives off this scent and I could actually smell it. I was like what is that lovely flowery smell that I'm not used to at this time of year and I realized mm. it was the chewed up grapevine leaves um, that was just attracting more and more of them. So they look awful. I go out every single night and pull off about 50 of them. I did a ton of research on this. I have a post on my blog about all the research I did on this. Um, 
you're not supposed to get these pheromone traps because you will attract even more to your yard. But a neighbor and I decided it was so bad that, you know, even if it was a sacrifice, we should take out some of the population. Um, these are non-native pests that have no predators, basically. And so they really can be a problem. So we felt like we were doing our part, but I'm still paying the price. So we've, we've now gotten rid of really thousands and thousands of our local beetles and they, they're still coming. Um, they're supposed to only have a six week feeding season. And I really think that ought to be up by now. Um, but they just massacred um, those vines and I'm so sad about it. But, you know, I'm emailing with a blogger friend who's just starting a garden and I just keep trying to say, you know, there are failures. We learn from them and that's completely okay. It's part of the learning process. You do better next time. And this is why we plant a lot of different things. So grapevines, a little bit of a disaster, but juneberries and rhubarb were awesome. And that's just the so way it's going to go. So next year, are you going to plant um, something besides grapes so you don't have those beetles or you're going to try to figure out a way not to like get those beetles in there six weeks ago? What was six weeks ago? Like the beginning of Right. End of June, okay. last week in June are you gonna figure something else yeah. or watch for them then yeah. was it did you well, actually get uh, one of those traps and then well, now I, you're having more yeah yes I think oh. that could have been why we have more but I still think it was a worthwhile pursuit so the the population ought to be lower next year because they didn't get it when you when you go drown them if you've had these things um they're almost always mating so uh, <laughs> killing them off at that moment means uh, fewer next year. So I'm expecting it not to be as bad. Um, and I'm actually contemplating just putting out a trap early, like I've seen some people do, again, just to get them and get them gone because they're so, so destructive. They also, they're chewing up my apple tree a little bit. Um, they sit on my ripe plums um, and kind of enjoy digging into them. So they're, they're a really bad pest to have around. Um, there are some pretreatments that my neighbor and I are looking into. Um, so there are some soil bacteria and diseases and things that you can introduce. Milky spore um, is something that people apply. There's some sort of mixed results with that. I'm looking into beneficial nematodes, which I've never done anything with. Um, and seeing if there's some other sort of prevention me methods to do. Spraying something that smells bad on them early might help if I can mask the scent of my wonderful grape, grape leaves and get them not to come. Uh, that might help me. Um, so I have to, one of the things that I'm not great at because I get embroiled in other projects is just kind of keeping on top of that, that garden schedule that you need to remember to get out. And I've started writing things in my calendar. <laughs> so my calendar for next June will already say something about spray with neem. It'll make your grape leaves smell bad. Um, so yeah, so you, you learn from a, a bad year and hopefully don't have another bad year, but that's not always the case and, and I'm okay with that. We get so much food from our yard um, that I'm not gonna beat myself up over the things that don't go well. I'm gonna have to go look because I remember seeing something like in the middle of July about what to do about Japanese beetles. Um, also, I love all this because I've just been like promoing on my show um hey this is the most important time to journal in your garden so you don't forget because you might think you're going to remember that next june do something about those beetles but you are not if you don't write it down i love that you're putting it in your calendar already ahead of time that's awesome yeah i tried to yeah, do that because it's do so that true because you so think wrong. i'm never gonna forget this i'm never gonna forget <laughs> this. Like, march you're like what was that or 
Oh, I, I don't kid myself about that. Yeah. I, I don't kid myself about that anymore. I know I won't remember. Before we get to the root of things, we're going to thank our sponsors and affiliate links. You can find uh, Deer Fence Supplies on DeerBusters.com. We're located in Waynesboro, Pennsylvania. We ship nationwide for free. And if you want 10% off, type in the word fences, F-E-N-C-E-S, at checkout on DeerBusters.com and save yourself some money while you're getting Deer Fence. Hey, Green Future Growers. Join me on the Listen app. Invite code GREEN, G-R-E-E-N. I would love if you left me a message. You can reach out to other green future growers and other Green Organic Gardener podcast listeners there. And we could have a conversation about what's growing in your garden. What are you eating? Does it not feel good to walk by the produce aisle? It does for me. Um, and if you're not there yet, we'd be happy to help you get there. Over on the Listen app, invite code Green, G-R-E-E-N. And now, let's get to the root of things. So, <laughs> this is the part of the show, Susanna, where we call getting to the root of things. So, it could be picking Japanese beetles, but do you have a least favorite activity that you have to force yourself to get out there and do in the garden? Oh, yeah. That is, pests are my least favorite activity. I mean... The science part of me thinks it's really fun to go research sneaky ways to get around them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, if if I never saw another destructive pest, that would be okay with me. I don't need them to write about them <laughs> if they would stay out of my garden. We have um, we have another destructive pest that thankfully I think our um, practices have helped with. Um, I don't know if these have gotten to you where you are, but there's a fruit fly known as SWD or spotted wing Drosophila that think is I've ravaging that. berry crops um, around you. Not positive. They are really, really bad and really hard to control. So you can have a whole tree or bush full of berries and they will get in the unripe fruit. And when you go to pick the ripe fruit, it's mush. They've destroyed it and it is heartbreaking and that has happened to my June berries some years and I was worried about that. Um, we've gotten much more careful about picking up the berries that fall and getting every single berry off the plant that we possibly can and their populations have gone down a little bit. There's not a lot you can do um, that's non-toxic treatment for them. Um, so they're a real challenge. Um, but yes, if I had to pick one thing not to do in my garden, I, I would rather weed than deal with pest problems. Um, nobody, nobody loves weeding. And in fact, I don't do a lot of weeding. <laughs> I probably leave a lot more weeds than I should, in part because I know you can eat them. So it's like, why pull up that plant? I could always put it in a salad, <laughs> which is fine when my salad greens don't come up. So definitely that. I agree wholeheartedly. I have a lot more weeds that are growing that I just feel like they're shading the soil. They're keeping it covered. And just um, just as long as I can try to get them out, maybe like chop them off or something before they um, go to seed so they don't plant more. Um, so that's something Mike and I have been doing. So on the flip side, what's your favorite activity in the garden? No, oh, isn't everyone's harvesting? I mean, eating something fresh off the vine, my cherry tomatoes always pull through and um, getting some of those berries, that's absolutely the best. Or just seeing how much you can get out of such a small space. Um, absolutely harvesting, no question. I mean, that's why we all do it, right? 
Yeah, well, there, uh, you know, it's kind of like weeding. There's weeding I like when I'm sitting beside a bed and it's kind of therapeutic and I'm just doing a small row. And then there's like weeding Mike's mini farm that I don't want to have anything to do with. Or like when it's super hot in August and I haven't been down in the garden in three days and like all of a sudden everything is just growing out of control. And if I don't pull the weeds, I'm going to lose like my lavender plants or my snapdragons this year. Uh But I feel the same right. way with harvesting, like right. harvesting a cherry tomato here and there, like picking a garden salad. But like when all of the food comes on at once, sometimes harvesting is not my favorite thing. But Right. Okay. I don't have a big enough yeah. garden to feel uh, like And I love problem, your enthusiasm. So. It's just awesome. I don't want to be <laughs> Debbie Downer. <laughs> <laughs> no, I... What what that we all what that we all had that problem. That sounds that sounds fantastic, but that's where you can get friends in and offer yeah. them offer Well, them I'm lucky my husband does most of it. And this year I have to say, like, so this is the first year he ever grew peas for like more than just sugar snap peas that we eat in June, like right off with the shell and everything. Like this year, the first year he grew shelling peas. And I have just so enjoyed going and mm-hmm. usually I go and sit and water the garden and read a book at night after I'm done on my computer and just trying to decompress. And so the last week, like I just had this like information overload. And so to just go down there and sit and shell those peas and not even read or think and just enjoy was so nice. And just, I'm so excited because we buy a lot of frozen peas in the winter. And so to have our own frozen peas has been so exciting. And that has been fun harvesting. Now, granted, he went and picked them off the plants and all I had to do was shell them. Uh Oh, shelling them, that's a big project. We split it this year. Usually he does (laughs) it and he takes care of like all the green beans, like snapping the ends off and snapping them into three pieces. And then um, he's canned them in the past, but we're thinking about freezing them. A little this year but we don't uh-huh. we like we've been looking for a freezer to get i don't know it's always like one thing or another but anyway susanna what's the best gardening <laughs> advice you've ever received i think um the loan of square foot gardening was probably one of the best things that happened to me so i, I told you i didn't really know what i was doing too well when i got started and i was just reading and experimenting and i had this neighbor across the street who definitely knew a lot more than i did and she lent me this book and gave me some guidelines um it's uh, if, for people who aren't familiar with it um square foot gardening is a it's a book, it's a website, um, and it offers a way to grow more food, less space, in less space with less work, um, and also fewer resources. So it it's considerably lowers your watering needs as well um, compared to traditional uh, row gardening. So as a naturally frugal person, I really dislike the idea of planting, you know, tons and tons of seeds that you're just going to throw away. Um, the whole process of thinning is extra work. Uh, so this guy just spoke to me. He spoke to my frugal side, my lazy side, my um, rule-breaking side, uh, and really inspired me to do things differently. Um, and part of that, so so one of the things that kind of grew out of that is, first of all, I needed a square foot garden. Um, uh, so, um, we have a geothermal system that we put in, in our little tiny lot and completely destroyed, um, any soil structure. Not that, not that moving in a house was great for the soil. Um, and with that area, which was really our full sun area, uh, I brought in a bunch of raised beds, 
um, in a kind of diamond pattern. So it's sort of pretty for the people on the sidewalk, except that I don't weed it as much as I should. Um, and used some of his principles to create this um, super productive small garden so that I can cram a ton in. I do the succession planting um, and uh, plant things closer together than you can in a row garden. Um, so that's been, that's been really, really helpful. And then branching off from that, um, knowing that you can break rules um, led me to do things like you know, I have, I have no place to grow food. Let's think outside the box here. And a really overlooked place that I, I always encourage people to think about is um, if you live in a town with, it's called a parking strip. Um, I don't, your setting sounds more rural, but that area between the sidewalk and the street in our town is huge. It can be up to 12 or 15 feet wide. And the only time it ever seems to be used for most people is when they go out and mow it. So it's this grass that nobody plays on. Nobody recreates on. It's a water suck. It's bad for stormwater runoff. Um, and it's a great place to grow food. So that led me to stick rhubarb and fruit trees um, and lemon balm and mint, um, where before that I had this stupid parking strip where nobody actually parks either. So it's not it's not useful in that regard either. Um, so that was that was a really fundamental shift when I when I read that book and the way I practice gardening that I think kind of grew from there. Well, what you don't know about my show is that I frequently talk about those borders between the street hey. and the sidewalk and how much I hate that they're covered with those stupid little yellow flags that say, don't walk here, don't walk your dog here, don't let your, you know, it's just like for 24 hours, you can't touch that grass and they are all up and down the blocks in my mom's town they're all up and down the community where i worked in a restaurant last year every time i would go to walk to where my car is here in montana there'd be those ye little yellow flags saying don't walk here because we have just sprayed toxic chemicals into the lawn and i just would like to see them be perennial flower borders like i'm thinking if a publisher ever came to me and asked me to write a gardening book i want to um focus on perennial borders because i just think they they're, they're just they're just so mean like i the first place i saw one it was actually at the brooklyn grange the roof of the brooklyn grange my mom was fascinated with it and and i just the pictures i took of it it was so beautiful and all around the roof they just have all these flowers that kind of like keep the you know attract the pollinators and the and the beneficial insects but also kind of keep them in and just make their produce more i, I just oh those I, you have no idea how much I want to get rid of those little yellow flags that say, I mean, it's just like, what are you thinking? This is where your kids learn to crawl on your lawn. This is where your dog, you walk your dog, but here, let's. Oh. Yeah, no, the pesticide spraying to preserve grass is insane. Um, and even without that, I'm, I'm totally against the boulevard grass because I think it's such a ridiculous waste. And there's so much extra lawn in the United States that doesn't need to be there. I'd love to see that converted to whatever that would be better for the environment. Yeah, I love the idea of fruit, of fruit bushes and things. And just what did I, I just saw this incredible statistic on the news the other day that one in 54 children has autism in 2020 one in 54 wow. children and my wow. guest number nine was this doctor in massachusetts dr stephanie senek and she is one of the leading researchers on glyphosate and she's like yeah. i i can't 100 draw a, a conclusion right. or something but the graph 
from when we started spraying glyphosate back in the 70s correlates 100% with the graph of the rise in autism. And mm -hmm. I say that with a grain of salt, but at the same time, you know, what's in that spray that they're putting all over the lawn. And then I also talked to this guy that I want to introduce you to, Ron, um, I think it's Cayman, Corman, I forget what his last name is, but he is just starting a podcast. I think it launched today or yesterday on mm -hmm. alternative energy and different things. Um, so I'm sure he would love to hear about your house and your geothermal because that was one of the options he talked about. But also he said that on Long Island where my mom lives, there's a huge like just influx of cancer, like breast cancer and women's cancer. Um, and I would not be surprised. Like the, there's a huge article on Long Island about the water problems, like the same stuff that, you know, what's her name, Erin um, Brockovich found in California, yeah. chromium hex six or whatever it is. Oh, anyway, I'm so glad to talk to you today and just share all your great knowledge. So back to uh, what's your favorite tool? If you had to move, what tool could you not live without? Oh, well, so I'm, I'm on such a small space uh, that I find that the tool that I could probably do everything with and I tend to do everything with is just a little trowel and not, I think maybe it was sold as a planter. It's not as pointy as one of those, those bulb planter things, but it's thinner. It's wonderful for digging. I use it, you know, most of my digging is in these, in these little raised boxes that I've got, um, I, I could probably do all my gardening with that. That would go with me wherever. If I don't lose it in the yard, I tend to lose my trowels <laughs> quite a lot. I think there are some buried under the undergrowth somewhere. It's like the missing staff. sock in the dryer. Where do they go? Uh -huh. I totally understand. Yeah, the missing trowel and the missing, the missing uh, printers. I just have a terrible problem. With you that. know what I finally I did? I put this old mailbox down in my garden <laughs> because what was happening to me was I would leave the printers up at the house. And so uh -huh. I put the mailbox and the pruners stay in the mailbox and that has been a game changer because then oh, I do a lot more deadheading and pruning and just, um, uh -huh. they're right there. Right. Oh, that's a great idea. I love that. What's your favorite recipe you like to cook from the garden? Oh, hands down ratatouille. Uh, what is better than eggplant plus zucchini and tomatoes and this time of year? It's just, and I, I make it in giant batches. I eat a little bit of it and the rest goes in the freezer. So I'm eating it in January and February and sometimes even in March when it is still very much winter out here. Um, and I'm angry because it says it's spring on the calendar. So I'm still, I'm still eating my ratatouille. I put up a ton of it. Oh, yum. How about, do you listen to podcasts? Do you have a favorite podcast? Um, I am just getting into podcasts. I'm a very visual person, so I tend to read around more than listen, and I find that I don't, I'm not in a place to, to um, have my ears busy with my kids underfoot so much these days. <laughs> um, so okay. uh, would you like a, would you like a web resource that's, that's not a podcast? Yes. Okay, um, so there are some absolutely fantastic um, foraging sites that I use for reference all the time, um, uh, like Edible Wild Food. Um, but then uh, also um, I go often to um, a website called Practical Self-Reliance. I find it just wonderfully inspiring. It's where I learned you could eat milkweed, for instance. Um, so I've really enjoyed that. Um, and then, um, I also really like attainable, sustainable, 
Um, you can kind of hear how that would line up with the kinds of things I'm trying to do. She has really great information. And then um, Amy Strauss's 10th Acre Farm is wonderful for all things permaculture. I really like how approachable she makes those. Wow, lots of great things there. Hey, I just wanted, so milkweed's the same stuff that like everybody's supposed to grow for the monarch butterflies, right? Yes, it is. Awesome. How about, so what's your favorite reading material or book? Oh, I just, I just named them. Oh, you the book <laughs> and the internet at the, the same time. The Those are pretty much, pretty much the same. I mean, I don't, I don't know how other bloggers are, but I tend to be on my computer a ton. Um, when I do actually sit down with something that's not on a screen, I'm a great fan of um, Mother Earth Living magazine. Oh, nice. I really and I thought I you really were getting the square foot lasagna one. Ah, square foot gardening. Well, that's not reading material. I mean, that's a how-to book. I wouldn't sit down and read that too often once you've got the <laughs> once you've got the nuggets of information. Hmm. Uh, do you have any kind of like? What if somebody wanted to become a garden writer? Hint, hint. Oh wow! <laughs> oh my goodness. Uh, do I have it? So I I um, was finishing my teaching job and I took. Um, my very first online class, I'd never did, I'd never done that before. Um, a writer called Carol Tice, um, has a good website, um, uh, about freelance writing and she was running something called Pitch Clinic. Um, it was the first time I'd ever just tried a course that was entirely online and I learned how to pitch magazines. Um, and it's hard. It takes a lot of work, a lot of time. Um, I would say my main advice would be start writing for the web, um, which is far easier than print because um, the needs for content have not gone down even as other things have. Um, but write about what you know. I mean, I've, I've uh, tended to find the articles that have gotten um, the most uh, ready responses are ones where I'm answering questions that I had, like, is it safe to grow food on the street? I have an article about that, um, uh, or, you know, by the street in that, in that um, parking strip we were talking about, um, or the kinds of pest problems you've dealt with, um, but things that aren't just the traditional um, basics about gardening, um, things that fill a niche that you have knowledge of that other people don't. Like elderberries. Uh... What was, now that was, I was gonna. Yeah. What could not be safe about growing in the parking strip, like pets going to the bathroom on it? Oh like, no, tons of people or like what? contaminants. Yeah, tons of people have worried about contaminants. So uh, I interviewed. I've interviewed a, a couple soil scientists who who look at stuff like this. Um, and apparently what comes out of a tailpipe nowadays is not really going to land and persist in the soil. Um, but uh, historical lead contamination is totally an issue from the age of leaded gasoline because lead lands there and it stays there um, in the particulates. So uh, for people gardening in the city, for instance, if they live near a highway built before lead was ban banned from gasoline, um, they want to get their soil tested for, for lead levels. Um, that would be an issue. Places that have any kind of in industrial contamination, like arsenic or heavy metals, um, you would want to you would want to test and make sure that's that's okay. But that that probably would be beyond the street 
that would be anywhere in your yard if you were if you were looking at something like that. But people really worry about about car exhaust um, and contaminants from street cleaning and things like that. Um, and I worry about it a little bit. Um, you know, picking leafy stuff off the boulevard maybe isn't as good as picking apples um, or juneberries. Um, but uh, we had our soil tested and, and the lead levels were just normal background levels that you would expect in soil. Okay, don't forget listeners, her website is Healthy Green Savvy. And Savvy is S-A-V-V-Y, Healthy Green Savvy. Because I know you are going to want to explore her website as much as I do. And just, you've dropped so many golden seeds. This, I, I, this is going to be a top downloaded episode. And just, I know... You are like, so you know how you certainly probably know how people are always like, talk about your avatar, your ideal reader, who's listening to the, you know, who wants to read this? What are they going to get? And like, yeah. my avatar wants to hear from you <laughs> and know these exact things. Like I have two whole pages dedicated to Jenny and where she lives and what she's growing yeah. and like how she, when she yeah. what takes her two mile walk to work, carrying her, you know, recycled uh -huh. coffee cup and uh -huh. Blah, blah, blah. She's okay. walking through yards that she wants to know all the neighbors in her yard on her walk are following the practices that you're talking about. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that I'm writing for yeah, her. Yeah, I great. absolutely. I know <laughs> that they, there's going to be a lot of people that are going to want to learn a lot more about you. So, uh, uh, so my final question, you've probably read and know it's a doozy. If there's one change you'd like to see to create a greener world, Susanna, what would it be? For example, is there a charity or organization you're passionate about or project you'd like to see put into action? Like, what do you feel is the most crucial issue facing our planet in regards to the environment, either locally, nationally, or on a global scale? Okay, well, I think one is just too tall in order. I have two. I hope that's okay. Um, you can have one is, you can drop golden okay. seed after golden seed. Okay, well, I'm going to keep it to two um, because these are the biggies. Um, switching to renewable energy is so easy. <laughs> I don't know why more people aren't doing it. We, we as a society are paying more to power our lives and pollute the planet than we could if we were using solar, geothermal, and wind. It's just insane. I started looking into buying an electric vehicle recently and I could not believe how hard it was to get a salesperson to even think that was a worthwhile pursuit. They're still pushing these ridiculous cars that get under 30 miles a gallon. It makes absolutely no sense. It costs you more. Um, our solar panels don't even, um, we didn't have enough room to, to cover um, a hundred percent of our energy usage, but they're, they're getting way more than we expected. They're getting like 65% of our energy usage. We're buying the rest from a um, community solar garden. It is simple to switch to renewables. And that's one of the things that our house has sort of become a laboratory for. We have, we have no energy footprint anymore. Um, and it, you don't need to, um, especially with all the incentives that if people don't hurry, won't be there. Um, so the switch, the global switch to renewables is totally, totally one of the top things we need to be doing fast, because honestly, we're probably on the too late end of things at this point. But um, and then you've already touched on one of your bugbears, uh, the total end to chemical pollution. Um, again, just the insanity of throwing immense amounts of poison. Uh, in our soil, water, and air. It's incomprehensible that it's been allowed to continue when we should know better at this point. Those would be my two. 
Oh my gosh. I am so, 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 so glad you reached out to me and are sharing today. Like, I think if I didn't have my podcast and amazing guests like you to talk to and amazing listeners like my audience to, to know that, you know, they keep downloading, they keep listening. My audience keeps growing and it's because we all believe in this and we know it can happen. And I just feel like, um, thank you for sharing this today. So tell listeners one more time, how do they connect with you? Uh, so we're at healthygreensavvy.com. Uh, there are a whole bunch of buttons there if you're more a social platform kind of person. Um, I do a lot on my Pinterest account, which you'll find there. Um, not as much on Facebook. Uh, I have a bunch of free eBooks to pick up. Um, if you want to become a subscriber and stay in the loop, um, what's going on. Uh, in my world and the larger world of foraging, growing, and generally being green. (laughs) Do I get to give one piece of garden wisdom as well? You certainly may. Oh, hooray. Uh, I just want to make a push for even in the age of utter frustration with how things are going globally uh, for the environment and for other things that are Yards are this tangible place where we can really make a difference to improve the environment. Um, Even if you feel powerless about national policy, sometimes even local policy can be incredibly frustrating. Um, Turning your yard into a carbon-sucking oasis for pollinators is something anyone can do. And the more of us who do it, the better. That's awesome. I just wanted to read some of the eBooks. Get Growing, a Cheat Sheet for Newbie Gardeners. Nine Steps to a Less less Toxic Home, a Checklist and Resource Guide, and Affordable Healthy Food, Healthy Eating on a Budget. You can all find those eBooks and so much more at Healthy Green Savvy. Thank you so much for sharing with us. You're probably like, I thought this was only going to take a half hour and now we're at (laughs) an hour and 20 minutes, but oh my goodness, bless your heart and just uh, stay safe and Oh, Thank this you. was fantastic. <laughs> I feel so much better. What a great way to start my day. Oh, great. Well, it was great fun talking to you. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You bet. Hey, listeners, are you taking good notes of what's going on in your garden? Are you recording what's working well? Are you recording all the things that you want to do differently next year? I guarantee you, if you wait to the fall, if you think you are never going to forget that you want to plant more carrots or you want to put the arugula in a different bed or you want to get a different type of beet or you found the perfect seeds, if you think you're going to remember that in January, I guarantee you, you are not going to remember it. And the best thing you can do, and this is not just me saying this, this is guests have been on my show, but I know Mike and I. This is the time to be journaling. And hey, if you want to support the Organic Gardener podcast while you're doing it, did you know that I made a beautiful blank journal? It's got a photo of a butterfly on the lilacs at our house that I took. And it's got, I think, 135 pages that are either lined or blank that you can sketch in. So if you want to support us, and it's super cheap. It's like $5.95, I think, on Amazon. So um, if you want to support the show, but most of all, if you want to have good records for your garden, if you want a place where you can take notes, um, of what's going on now, what's working well, what didn't work, what don't you want to forget come February when you're filling out your order for next year, now is the time to do it. Whether it's 
I want to get some Agribond cloth. I want to make sure I have row cover. I want to make sure that I have, um, you know, I just did this awesome interview with um, this guy who's following Lisa Ziegler's Cool Flowers. Um, he's in the southeast. Um, but, it, you know, he's planting perennial seeds now because they are going to stuff their beds with cool season annuals and perennials for the fall um, so that in September they're coming, I mean, in the spring, they've already got a good start and everything else. And they can be one of the first flower farmers in the area to have flowers, a garden journal to record all of your hard work and your notes and what's working and what you don't want to forget for next year. Do you know someone who would benefit from the Organic Gardener podcast? If you like what you hear, we'd love it if you'd share the Organic Gardener podcast with a friend. Thanks again for listening. And remember, grow local.